The Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training is an independent, non-profit organization located in Arlington, Virginia. Over the past 30 years, ADST has produced the largest U.S. diplomatic oral history collection, unveiling the horrifying, thought-provoking, and the absurd events that have helped shape foreign policy. ADST.org, American Diplomacy, Warts and All. In this podcast, we will hear about the repercussions that took place in Czechoslovakia following the Prague Spring, including the Soviet invasion of the country, in August of 1968. Senator Pell came to, uh, to Prague in 1968, around July 4th, and uh, he wanted to go to uh, Košice. Košice is a town in the Hungarian part of Czechoslovakia, the part taken from Hungary after the First World War which was very close to the Soviet Union, just wanted to see what Košice was like. Gemini and, uh, and Pell flew to Košice. And there, uh, I had a chance to see, as did Pell, what the Prague Spring looked like a few miles from uh, the Soviet Union. It looked like it looked in Prague. I mean, there were people dancing and the big beat, and so you couldn't imagine you were in a communist country. Really. There was, there was freedom from one end to the other. There was movement, particularly the youth, who inspired throughout the whole country. The next day, we went to uh, Ujgorod. We went to the border. And this border looked like the Iron Curtain. Two communist countries, but there was a Soviet motorized infantry regiment maneuvering. They had just come back from Czechoslovakia. They were right on the border. You could hear them firing, firing all the time. You could see the barbed wire, the, the, the plowed earth. It was just like the Iron Curtain. It was an experience, and, and one of the reasons it was the Soviets were probably so curious about this was a couple of days later they picked out Ujgorod as one of the points where the whole Soviet Presidium, the Politburo, and the Czech Presidium should meet. And the reason they called for this meeting, either in Ulaf or in Kiev or in Ujgorod, was that uh, they thought that Dubček had a lot of opposition, and he did, in the Politburo, in the Presidium. And the of course, their Politburo was fully united, and they would they would be able to overawe him because he wouldn't have any of his, his friends around. They thought too that the whole the Russians thought that the Czech Communist Party was divided. They thought the Central Committee was divided. But the thing was, the further down you went in Czechoslovakia, the less division there was. The Czech population was really fully united. The Czech Central Committee was not united, but it was stronger for Dubček, but the Presidium had five or six guys who were bad. And so they had this, uh, this uh, anyway, uh, the Czechs didn't accept Ujgorod. They couldn't accept a place outside of the uh, Czechoslovakia because they felt that as soon as they got there, they'd be arrested. Yeah. And that could easily have been done. And like, yeah, what happened to Imranage and Paul yeah. Gallagher, you know, you, you well, so anyway, they, they finally decided on uh, a border point, Cherna Nantiso. Cherna is right at the border, near Košice. And the two, uh, they did meet there, the two presidiums. Uh, and they reached an agreement. Uh, and then they went to Bratislava the next week and they announced, they celebrated their agreement. All the problems had been resolved and so forth. So that was the situation in early August. 
and it looked like maybe there had been some uh, some reconciliation, mm -hmm. but it wasn't it wasn't clear, and uh, we were worried. I remember going to the airport to see Bob Warner and Issa Warner off, and at the airport uh, on August 17th, uh, Carl Paterlich, a uh, very well-informed Austrian diplomat who'd been born in Prague, uh, said there was a rumor that uh, Brezhnev had given Dubček a short amount of time to get affairs cleaned up or else. And I wrote in my uh, journal, maybe the honeymoon is over. Well, that was the day that the KGB began to send people into the country preparatory to what happened three days later. <coughs> well, uh, I was awakened at uh, 2 in the morning on the morning of the 21st by the duty officer, Ted Figura, who said uh, the Russians are in Bratislava. And it took me a while to clear out my head, and, and, and the Russians are in Bratislava, they've got no business in Bratislava. <laughs> Well, we reached Bratislava first because that was one of the first, but they were also coming then I, I could hear uh, the drone of engines, which had just started. They began landing about two in the morning at, at uh, the Prague airport. It landed with perfect precision, and these guys were bringing in the invasion force. So we went to work and uh, at about uh, four, I think, uh, it was hard to tell what was going on because the conspirators, who were considerable, had got control of Prague Radio and they were refusing to publish a statement. It had been heard once and that's how the United States was informed that the country was being invaded without the knowledge or consent of the Czech government or Presidium or anybody. But then this message was stopped and so you couldn't hear anything on the radio which would, would tell you what was going on. It was the middle of the night to begin with, but I could hear the, these planes landing. So the, uh, the chief of station and I went for a long walk. We walked past Hrotshining, uh, we walked past the Czech uh, government building where Chernik would have been. We were not able to walk as far as the, uh, as the party building where Dubček was because that was on the other side of the river and a long way away. There were couples, a few of them strolling around. It was the middle of the night, but uh, there were cars here and there, and you couldn't tell what was going on. Already at this point, however, Chernik had been sacked and grabbed by the Russians. He was the premier. Uh, shortly thereafter, Dubček and Smirkovsky were, were nabbed, and, and others that the Czechs had on their list, and they, they kidnapped all of them and took them separately from Czechoslovakia. They took them first to Poland, and then they took them to the Soviet Union around Uzhgorod. <laughs> we walked the streets, came back, and by the time we got back to the embassy, there were new guards, I mean, they weren't going to let us in. One of them blocked me with a powerful arm from going in the embassy, and then uh, somebody who knew me said, that's all right, he belongs to the embassy. They had put these guards, uh, the conspirators had put these guards on there, uh, people in the security service who were cooperating with them, to prevent a lot of Czechs from running into our embassy grounds. They didn't want them to escape in the embassy mm -hmm. once the invasion started. Well, that's what it looked like in the middle of the night. Then I went for a walk uh, first thing in the morning, and you could see the, the impact of the tanks. The tanks were just arriving. The traffic was just arriving. Prague, I don't know about Belgrade, but Prague goes to work early in the morning. Oh, yeah. Early yeah. in the morning. Very early, yeah. And uh, here they were, the, the, the streets are so narrow in Prague and the streetcars couldn't pass the tanks. A tank would be here, there'd be a streetcar, there'd be a streetcar, another tank over there. 
tanks were islands surrounded by IRA Czechs shouting at them, you know, what are you doing here? Well, they had come here to save the Czechs, and the Czechs said, we don't need any saving. And this, that, that was the mood, the immediate mood. Mm-hmm. But then things that very quickly got, got harsher. Because when I had been out on the walk with uh, <coughs> my colleague, we had noticed that there was an airplane, a drone, right over the middle of Prague, right over Vaslav's uh, Wenzel Square, Vaslavsky Namiesty, and the Czech radio was right there. What he, what the drone was doing was guiding the forces coming from the airport towards the, down the heart of the city. As they came through the city in the night, when the tanks came through the city to take over the downtown area, they then went, went for the radios. And uh, I did not see that particular, because I'd gone back to report in the embassy, but you, the radios by this time had come on and they were broadcasting for all they were worth. And they were broadcasting, they said, as a group of students and civilians are trying to keep the tanks away from the building. You could hear the firing, the heavy machine gun firing. They later called it uh, uh, El Gretschko's mural. They, they, they were firing on the radio station. And then finally, it was a very poignant moment when the Czechs said, we're going to have to sign off the air now. Uh, when you hear, you'll hear other voices, but uh, don't trust them. And uh, it, was, it was really quite, then you heard the Czech national anthem, which is particularly beautiful. And then there was just the firing, gunfire followed. There was silence on the radios. And then they came back on. But they were not the uh, they were not the bad guys. The Czechs had been prepared. They thought the Americans or the West Germans might invade the country, and they had a whole elaborate scheme of broadcasting. For one thing, they broadcast from hidden facilities in the radio itself. The Russians didn't find them for a couple of days. And in addition, they began to broadcast from the transmitters, which were mobile, and they began to pass from hand to hand. Not only in Prague, but in 15 or 16 points throughout the country. Mm-hmm. And it was those radios that told the world that the Czechs were still resisting. Because, you know, without that, I mean, the embassy could have reported it. The embassy could have reported the mobs of, uh, of, of thousands of Czechs who took to the street in protest, but it wouldn't have been. But with the radio itself, and as a Czech author points out, it became the government. It became the government of resistance, and everyone obeyed it. When one of the radios told them to, to demonstrate at noon, they demonstrated. When the radios told them to do this, they did it. It became, it showed how effective uh, and how far the democratic processes had gone in a country that had been a democracy. No. There just was enough, uh, they weren't dealing with people who didn't have any understanding of democracy. This podcast has been brought to you by ADST. Tune in to our final installment where we will discuss the occupation of Czechoslovakia by Soviet troops and the actions that the State Department took to protect Americans that were in the country at the time. For more, check out our website at adst.org. ADST, American Diplomacy, Warts and All.